Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered, the podcast that examines and explains the inner workings of the insurance industry. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC, and in each episode, I will discuss an aspect of the insurance market with a leading individual from the insurance world. Please note that this episode was recorded prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. And today, I'm delighted to say that my guest is Sean Fisher. CEO of the Chartered Insurance Institute, and we'll be discussing, amongst other things, the role of the Institute in the modern-day insurance market. Now, Sean has had a diverse career in insurance, starting out as a reinsurance broker, but progressing rapidly through the ranks to become Chief Underwriting Officer at Hiscox. In 2004, Sean became a founding director of Oxygen PLC, where she set up a pioneering London market managing general underwriter. And since 2016, she has, as already mentioned, being the CEO of the Chartered Insurance Institute. <laughs> so, Sean Fisher, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Peter. It's wonderful to have the opportunity to uh, tap into your experience and knowledge. <laughs> um, now, kind of going back to beginnings, uh, you read law um, at Oxford University and then did an MBA at Harvard. So what led you to a career in insurance rather than a career in, say, law or different types of business? Yeah, so the two were, those two things were actually quite far apart. Uh, So the MBA was more a product of the fact that I was already in business as opposed to starting out that way. Um, So I I did law because I didn't want to do a subject that I'd done at school. I wanted to do something different. Um, And I'm very glad I did it, loved it. Um, But I had to say I worked out while I was doing it that it possibly wasn't in itself what I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing. Um, But I was quite keen to find a a sort of business way of using it. Um, And obviously insurance was one of the options. But the real reason why I went into insurance was that um, when I was a teenager, I, I actually watched a documentary about Lloyds of London. And I remember it just stuck in my mind that because I had I had this horror of ending up working or sitting in an office all day, and I quite liked that idea that it was a sort of face to face trading environment. But uh, the other big criteria was I was desperate. I lived in a village in the West Midlands, and I was desperate to find something that meant I could come and work in London. Um, and uh, and obviously the city was very fashionable in the early eighties. It was just kind mm. of really getting revving. Um, and so lots of my friends were coming to work in the city as well. So it was a bit of a combination of those things. And your desire to avoid the office life, was that successful? Uh, <laughs> well, I laughed a few years later. I mean, obviously, initially it was because as a broker, uh, you spend a lot of time actually walking around yeah. and going into other people's offices, but not for long. Um, and then when I'm swapped sides, if you like, and went from broking to underwriting, then I was a classic Lloyd's, trained as a Lloyd's underwriter. So again, we sort of sat at the box um, and then sometimes went to an office and sometimes went to somebody else's office. But So there was always quite a lot of variety, not just sitting behind a desk. Absolutely. So obviously you, you did jobs kind of within the market, but then when you left Arthur J Gallagher in 2014, kind of anything was open to you. You could have gone in any direction in, in the insurance world, but yet you chose to uh, join the, the Chartered Insurance Institute um, as the CEO. What, what was it about that role that attracted you? 
Well, you probably, as you very kindly read through some of the things I've done, you know, actually, largely when I've left a previous role, I've then been quite keen to go and do something different. Um, I actually, I'm qualified myself as a, an ACII, and I'd had quite an, a, a sort of pro bono relationship with the chartered body. Um, I've always felt that professionalism is a very important concept and we lose it at our peril um, and I've always regarded myself as a self-driven individual professional regardless of what else I do so I do I've always felt that the professional body for our sector was important um, I was quite friendly with my predecessor um, mm. and I'm a huge respecter of what he achieved um, so when he said he was retiring um, and suggested that uh, it might be something that I might be interested in. Um, I was a bit surprised because obviously I'm from a commercial background. Absolutely, yeah. um, but when he and the board explained what they were kind of looking to do, um, I thought it would be very interesting. So it's a change. It's a modernization change program I'm essentially doing. But for me, it's a huge privilege because I'm doing it within a, you know, um, a royal charter body Absolutely, and in, yeah. a, in a not-for-profit environment which means we have the huge privilege of not having shareholders that we have to distribute or partners or banks or any or you know PE houses that we have to give lots of return to you know what we have to do is is reinvest sensibly our, any surplus we make in in our profession and for the benefit you know of, of our members and, and customers. And we'll come on to the, the the changes and the challenges that you face in due course but the tagline for the, the Chartered Institute is standards, professionalism, trust. Yeah. Um, what is it precisely that the Institute does? Yeah. Um, and why are those three words so crucial to it? Well, the Chartered Insurance Institute is the professional body for insurance and personal finance. So in the same way as... as uh, I'm assuming, Peter, that you're a lawyer yourself. Um, yes, uh, so, you know, in the yep. same way as you would be an individual professional member of the Law Society, that's absolutely the same concept as the CII. Um, we are all professional bodies operate under royal charters, so they're all not-for-profit organisations. And the concept is that you're you're given your charter in the public interest. So uh, we're a society of members for the benefit of the public, as mm. I uh, put it. But our job as the professional body is more member professionals to serve the public. Okay, I mean that's it because the when I was doing my a bit of research, it was the, the Royal Charter uh, back in 1912, mm -hmm. um, I believe, uh, says that the purpose is to secure and justify the confidence of the public in insurance. Yeah. So um, by the sounds of it, that's the the whetstone against, against which you judge everything. That, yes, that. and if you, you said about the tagline, because I think why or how would you do that through more member professionals? The thing is the concept of being a professional kind of has three elements to it. So yes, there is the knowledge, mm -hmm. obviously, uh, but these two other elements which are really, really important, which is you know integrity. So it's the way that you actually behave and how you feel about your relationship with your customers or your or the public mm -hmm. and then the the sort of generic concept that you're in a relationship with society so that you you have an obligation to behave in a way that is beneficial uh, to society and i think the concept of being a professional in your own right has existed you know for thousands of years if you take doctors as a as an example and it is that idea that you yourself are in a fiduciary relationship. 
so I think that's, you know, standards. If you don't have standards, you're not going to have professionalism. If you don't have professionalism, you know, you won't have trust. Um, because we all know that you don't build trust, you know, by talking about it. You you build trust through the way that you act. Absolutely. And yeah, it's, trust is always one of those kind of intangible things isn't it which you build in ways which you don't can't necessarily put your finger on but you mm. can lose very quickly in ways which are far more obvious and and actually the professional bodies are interesting because in 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 essence i mean they exist very strongly in the uk um and the concept of being professional exists around the world but the concept of professional bodies that nurture and and uh, manage that uh, is pretty unique to the UK, in fact. Um, so I think it's something that you know we should be very proud of. And uh, the institute sets exams, is that right, for its members? Or? Yeah. So if you said you know more member professionals to serve the public, what does that mean? So you know what what we say is that uh, what we're here to do is provide learning but relevant learning because there's no point if it's all out of date or it's the wrong stuff. Uh, engaged membership because people just being members of us to tick a box doesn't really achieve anything we you know for lifelong learning etc you have to have a relationship with people um, and then actually if you're in this relationship with society there are going to be things where leadership you know in we call it insightful leadership because it's you know it's not about just floundering around in everything we can only pick certain things um, but certainly that idea of of building public trust is where we look in terms of the leadership activities that we that we get involved in. And uh, I, I suspect you may be aware there's a video of you lurking on YouTube. Um, <laughs> I from... think there is of almost everybody who exists these days. <laughs> the moment. Yes. Um, from shortly after you became the CEO, in which you said that you wanted uh, the Institute to become thought leaders, mm. um, both in terms of influencing policy makers uh, good luck with that, mm. and of educating the membership about changes in, in policy. Mm. Um, uh, did you regard that as one of your main challenges when you arrived at the Institute? Well, I mean, you know, if you if you live in any uh, sort of democratic society, you're going to have government and probably regulation uh, and people who have a lot of power over how things operate. And, you know, if you're a trade body, you're going to have a relationship with them in a kind of what you might call lobbying sense. But as a professional body, the relationship you'd want to have with them is is that they would listen to you on topics which could be really important to the public. So there's no guarantee that governments will make good policy decisions about benefits, pensions, whatever it is. And similarly, there's no guarantee that regulators will do that as well. So we would never be lobbying the government or uh, a regulator on behalf of the sector in mm -hmm. a commercial sense. Uh, we would be talking with them in relation to the effect of what they were doing might have on the profession and therefore on the public. Um, so that would be the sort of line that we would take. You met, in the answer, you mentioned the uh, financial element of, of the Institute's mm -hmm. role, because I'd always assumed it was it was purely an insurance thing, but it's not. It's wider than that, isn't it? Yes. So, um, I mean, if you think about the way insurance got started, it covered everything. So if you think of, uh, I say, if you think about life being a risky business and you think about that risk in terms of you as an individual, but also your business, 
also your wealth, also your family. You know, it's a huge area that it that it covers. Um, and what's happened is lots of things have changed about the way that those things are protected. Sometimes it's not products anymore, it's advice or it's risk management, but they've all, if you like, come out of the, the mothership of insurance in the first place. So uh, professional bodies don't spring up every two minutes. Um, so essentially our role has remained to cover that whole space. Uh, and we now use the term personal finance as well as insurance, because insurance does have a particular legal meaning in the sense that you are actually selling products. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas now, as you know, in uh, financial advice, you have to separate advice from products. Uh, so that's why we've, we use the term personal finance as well. And um, in the four years since you've taken over as, as CEO, what, what changes have you been trying to make? Uh, well, when when we started, uh, as, as one always has to, uh, we were asked to put out a manifesto. And we basically said, we're going to do three things to ourselves. And we're going to try and, you know, we're going to do very effectively three things for the profession. So to ourselves, we said, you know, relevant, modern and diverse. Mm. Um, which I think people would, would resonate with people. And then, as I said, for the profession, we said, right, you know, the learning's got to be relevant, the membership's got to be engaged, and, and you know, the leadership's got to be insightful. So, you know, let's make those things happen. And, and how have you gone about that? What, what sort of steps have been taken to achieve those things? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, internally, uh, we were very fortunate that uh, the board of the CII had already um, decided to do a a strategic review with uh, PwC. So that was very, very helpful. And essentially that came out with a, a classic change program with a series of work streams. And the idea was to try and involve everybody in the business in something where they could input to what they wanted to change or what they wanted to continue or what they wanted to improve. Um, and so I think we did manage in the end through, we had like 25 work streams and I think that sort of pretty much involved everybody in the business but we came out at the end of it with you know five big areas of, of activity and it won't surprise you to know that quite a bit of that's been internal in terms of you know technology website modernization and in fact our governance structure because institutes can get quite inward looking um, so we did. We also did as part of our review. We did a governance review as well. So hopefully, when people look at us from the outside now, we you know we look a lot more transparent and and accessible than we did uh, five years ago. So a lot of a lot of change, a lot of modernisation for people to uh, get their heads around. Yes. Um, and looking now mm -hmm. in twenty twenty, um, what do you see as the, as the top three challenges facing the insurance world at the moment? I mean, obviously, I'm going to say trust, aren't I? And, and you know, I, I, I don't mean that in a motherhood and apple pie sense. The fact is, I, I actually have a bit of an issue that we describe ourselves as an industry. Um, and I think some of the issue we have with trust probably comes from that thinking because we don't sell shoes. You know, if you sell shoes, it's, an, it's a single transaction. Uh, you know, you usually get what you pay for because you know if you buy a cheap pair of shoes, they're not going to be as good as an expensive pair of shoes. But it's your problem if you buy that pair of shoes and when you go out the door, it wasn't what you expected. Well, we can't approach what we do like that because what we're doing is 
we're selling people promises. We're making promises to people that things will happen when they need help. Um, and so to me, that's a profession. That's not an, that's not an industry. Um, but we have to be real about that because if we are selling things that are inappropriate or we are selling them in the wrong way, both of those things are going to rebound on us as we have seen in the last you know, 10 years. You say things that we've seen in the last 10 years, what, what are you referring to specifically? Um, I mean, they're all you know, hugely in the public domain. I mean, PPI, obviously, I mean, we, in many ways, the insurance sector was, I would hate to say lucky, but so the banks were distributing those mm. products, so they took the wrap on most of that. But, you know, it has to be faced that behind the banks there were insurance products and insurers behind those products um, and you know obviously at the moment we've got the uh, the discussion around how you manage on the one hand consumers wanting you know the best possible price up front for an in, uh, a personal lines insurance but actually not realizing that there might be some implications price wise for that over a five to six year period um, and both of those obviously there's been huge coverage of the unacceptability of both of those areas and uh, it, it always seems to me as a lawyer who's involved with insurance and therefore talks to a fair number of insureds how that always seems to be a disparity between what some insureds think mm. um, which is that insurers are, are out to avoid policies and avoid claims and and you know you've even hear insurers saying you know, that that's that, that's the job of insurers isn't it to avoid paying claims <laughs> And when I actually talk to insurers, mm. actually the vast majority of the time, yeah. they they're really keen to settle mm. claims and that, you know keen to kind of quantify the loss and and get it paid. That so, is absolutely so there does the seem case. to be a disparity there. Yeah. So I I don't think I mean we we um we instigated something called the public trust index about uh, two years ago, and it's not like a number. What it is 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 that we did lots of, uh, and we've done this through an external body, um, the Institute of, of uh, Customer Service, who are very credible in this research space. Mm. Um, and what they did was interview 2,000 people, um, and they came out with a, what, what language are they using as consumers and what are they really saying? And the interesting thing was that they then plot the outcomes onto uh, a picture saying, you know, we think it's important, but the consumers think it's important. We don't think it's important, but the consumers think it is important. And interestingly, a lot of stuff that we beat ourselves up over, mm. like speed of access, claims payment, whatever, quite actually quite high, not brilliant, but they were quite high. But the one thing that was really, uh, you know, loyalty, they use that term, they feel that, you know, we haven't, been rewarding them for loyalty um, and the other thing is value they're saying you know it's almost don't don't undercharge us <laughs> but demonstrate to us why we're paying what we're paying and what the value is uh, so it's it's an interesting it's a subtle difference from you know people just want a cheap price it's it's not quite that it's if you I think any consumer if you can't explain to them properly what the value is mm. they start to say well why am I paying this for it? But uh, but there was no doubt that actually people who'd experienced a claim situation did feel better uh, about things than people who'd not experienced a claim situation, which is interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, and yeah. you can see I, I quite like well I very much admire Zurich for the campaign they're doing 
you know, saying we pay 99% of claims mm. and they are adamant that they can prove that across their whole book. When you think what they do, they do life, they do oh, complex impressive. commercial, they do all sorts of things, um, but they feel they can prove categorically that they pay 99% of all claims. And I think that's important because if the public perception is it's more like 30%, well, that is not right. So it's brave but beneficial for a big brand to actually come out and say, you know, what the numbers are. Absolutely. And, and, and how do you think, I mean, obviously we've been in a soft market for a good long time um, and we're coming out of that and moving into a hard market. How do you think that will that may affect trust, where it might be that insurers do take a slightly harder line on things? I mean, I think it is complicated because it, it doesn't help insureds, you know, if for periods of time they don't seem to pay very much, which in some ways they often don't really understand that. And then for short periods of time, because it's mm. usually quite a short period of time, they're then asked to pay quite an, an egregious amount of money. <laughs> and if you think about tr particularly trying to run an SME, I mean, I, I spend most of my time with small business. You know, the budgets of small businesses are pretty tight. Um, and I'm sure, because I'm not as experienced in the personal line sector, but I'm absolutely sure with, you know, individual budgets, that's, you know, oh, certainly the case for, for me as an individual. Yeah. You know, you, you don't like big ups and downs, really. You want to be fairly clear why you're paying something and then what the value of that is on a fairly consistent basis. So I, I think hard and soft markets probably don't help us a lot in, in relation to the trust situation. And um, so, so public trust is uh, the, the number one challenge that you think that the insurance um, market faces. Uh, what would you say was the second one? So uh, I think there's, um, I suppose if I said automation, uh, and because if you like, automation goes along with commoditization. And if you go back to what I said about, you know, we're not really in the business of shoes, actually it's quite challenging the more that what we do appears to be like shoes uh, because that does drive certain behaviors in terms of both the seller and the buyer um, and the fact is that even something like a travel policy or you know that people say oh it's very simple it's not very simple it's quite complicated and even if, if the transaction is handled in a very efficient fashion which I think is right uh, the information that the person buying somehow needs to have access to uh, is still an important component and the more that you get commoditization for price the more complicated that becomes uh, so I think that's quite a challenge and then the trouble is the third I suppose the third element I'd say is disruption is that the right word mm. but uh, the more you commoditize something the more vulnerable you are to somebody else who hasn't traditionally done what you do actually being able to do it just as well as you do, if not better. Um, and we all we know definitely in insurance that, that, that you know, there are challenges from people who've got greater data capability. Um, so it will be very interesting to see. But that's why the, the relationship with consumers, what the relationship with the public and the value of information and advice that people are getting is is what professionalism is really about. It's it's keeping that because 
as I've said, that you know, the more something commoditizes, the more vulnerable it is to to uh, people, other people coming in, but also to practices of selling, you know, which which are not beneficial to to the customer. And in terms of the, the automation, it's a question I've never really thought about before. But in terms of the the direct sellers, mm-hmm. so the, the direct you know, consumer, the direct, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, taking the human element out mm. entirely, the broker side mm-hmm. of things, perhaps, which is obviously great from from a consumer perspective. It makes mm-hmm. life a lot easier in many respects, and you can see it all on on a web page, all in one go, as to you know who's offering what and what the price is. But do you think actually by by removing the, maybe the broker from that process and, and the, the the human face of insurance, do you think that might be you know over automation is in effect? He's having an effect on the trust side of things as well. Yeah, I mean, I think what the intermediation looks like, whether it's a person, whether it's a you know an AI, whether it's a website, whatever it is, um, I think that that is open to debate over time because, frankly, accessing we've got how many people have we got in this country? Seventy million people. Um, I mean, however big your intermediary market is, it's quite hard to get True. to seventy million people. Yeah. Um, so I think you need a combination. So I don't necessarily think that removing intermediation uh, helps the customer, but it, the, the intermediation's got to be adding value if. Mm if it's to still be beneficial. But certainly if you're a direct-to-consumer manufacturer and you've taken out the intermediation chain, then you have to take the responsibility yourself for ensuring that people still understand the complexity of what it is they're actually entering into. I mean, I'll just give you an example. If if you're really going to go direct-to-consumer, you've got to make sure that your products are adapted for that. So we still have very complicated concepts in insurance like joint and single policies and no claims, dis, you know, sorry, um, what do you call it, with motor. Um, you know, we have all sorts of concepts which we've had for a long time, but they are quite complicated. And, and we've just done some research that proves that you know, only a very small percentage of people actually understand the difference between a joint and single policy. Well, when you think of the implications of that, yeah. that's quite serious. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's precisely the role for the mm. Institute, the education mm. role um, for the public as a whole. I think everybody agrees that those are, are things that are very challenging for the, for the sector. Uh, the only advantage, and uh, I really enjoyed working at Gallagher's because... Uh, Pat Gallagher was very good at saying, you know, insurance is the best uh, business in the world because the fact is that whatever happens in the world, there is going to be risk associated with it. And those risks can change over time, but there's always risk associated with everything. So, of course, as soon as there is risk, particularly financial risk, somebody is going to want to mitigate that. And, you know, obviously they're always going to look around for you know, an insurance product to to do that. Uh, so it's almost got endless opportunity, uh, but it does it is beholden on the sector to keep up with where that opportunity is, not necessarily just to cling on to where the opportunity was in, in the past. But, I mean, we're very lucky in London. I mean, obviously we sit on the doorstep of the global insurance market and um, you know innovation is is at the heart of that so, absolutely and, yeah. you know, London has led 
the vast majority of right. new policies and new approaches over the last century or so. That's right. Definitely. But I think, you know, people are right to say, you know, you can't be complacent about that. I mean, there are very active uh, hubs around the world now as well. But I still think that when you have an ecosystem sitting somewhere, you know, that does pull into itself uh, lots of innovation. So long may that continue. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the Institute itself has been around for over 100 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, presumably, you believe that it's more needed now than ever. And in fact, you know, the mm. things that we've been discussing show that it's highly relevant, mm. um, perhaps more relevant than it's been for, for decades mm. with, with all the changes in society and the role that insurance has within all of that. Um, and actually the way in which insurance can potentially be a force for good yeah. uh, and progress in society. Um, do you believe that the Institute will still be around in, in another 100 years? And, and if so, how do you think it will? It might look then? I, I mean, I absolutely do. Um, but nothing has, an, a, a, you know, nothing has a, a total right to exist just because it always has. I mean, we're seeing that right, left and centre, aren't we, in today's, in today's world. But I think... The, the beauty of the professional bodies is this concept that you as an individual can drive your own professionalism and that you can drive your own relationship with society. Mm. Um, and I, I've i always found that personally very powerful. And it's quite interesting talking to uh, the government regulator. So obviously financial services are slightly unusual in that it's not governed by its own professional body. It's got a regulator. But by definition, the regulator can only put rules or punishable principles in place, which is like a parameter. But it's still down to what every single individual does every single day as to what actually happens. Um, so I think you need both. I mean, I, I, I you know, there's always the periphery of of, of a very small number of people actually who are for one reason or another do do the wrong thing and that therefore you've got to have a regime around that but i think the view is that you know 98.5 percent of people always on on any occasion want to do the right thing but what is that the and i think thing is the 1.5 percent all on twitter that's, <laughs> well i mean you know that's that's a, that's a new phenomenon that we've got to deal with but you know but the point is how do we equip the 98. Seven five percent to absolutely do what they can do, you know, to the maximum. Yeah. And I do think that yes, it's it's brilliant that you talk to the big employers, and we do that. You know, we have chartered firms as well as chartered individuals. Um, but at the end of the day, even within a firm, it's going to come down to what the individual does every day. And I think that is really where the power of a professional body comes in. Brilliant. And and if a, if a young person came to you and they were looking for a career and trying to work out what they wanted to do, mm. kind of, uh, what would be your sales pitch for, for insurance? Well, uh, you know, all the big four do these surveys of millennials all the time and say, you know, there are three things that they want. They want something that's, they want to do something that's worthwhile. Uh, they want something that gives them uh, a, a, a sort of a career opportunity uh, with quite a lot of scope and also most of them would like to work in something which has some global aspect to it well I can't think of many careers that would be more beneficial for that than than insurance and personal finance absolutely so. absolutely and finally kind of what lesson um, have you personally learned from your journey in insurance and uh, so what bit of advice would you give to someone starting out now 
it's really funny because my my partner actually was given a you know you get you get given these little homilies at Christmas, a little <laughs> plastic thing, and and it, I burst out laughing when I saw it because it says proceed and be bold, and I think that's probably where I'll leave it. John Fisher, that was absolutely magnificent. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Insurance Covered. Insurance Covered is an RPC production, recorded and edited by Mary Mitchell. We couldn't do this without Joe Burgess, Sean Alberts and, of course, our guests. Thanks to them. If you want to be a guest or have any feedback for us, please contact us on podcast at rpc.co.uk. Finally, please rate, share and review it. And please subscribe so that you can ensure receiving future episodes. Thank you.